For those of you who are new-ish to the, or perhaps even just plain old new to the uh, Anglican world, um, one of the things we use as a, a guide to apprentice ourselves to Jesus is something called the church calendar. And uh, it has a certain rhythm to it, and, and we're in a space in the church calendar now called Lent. And Lent basically mimics, um, in an effort to prepare ourselves for Easter, the 40 days that Jesus prepared himself uh, in the wilderness before he went public. And so the church just kind of borrowed that 40 days, and then my friend Rick Warren borrowed it, you know, 40 days of purpose. And, you know, so there's, there's sort of 40 days everywhere. And, uh, and so it's just a time where we set aside to pause, as our um, slide said during prelude, and to ask ourselves really one very fundamental question. What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? So at least once a year. I mean, you can do it in the daily offices. You can do it anytime you want. But at least once a year, the church pauses to say, what does it really mean to be an apprentice or a disciple of Jesus? Uh, we're reading Mark uh, this year in Lent. And for Mark, his basic definition of what it means to be a Christian is to be a follower of Jesus. And he shows us that this is not always intuitive, it's not always easy, that there's always challenges. In fact, three times in Mark's gospel, uh, Jesus predicts his going to the cross and dying. Each time, following that prediction, there's a story that shows the reluctance of the disciples to take that in or to in any way follow Jesus in that way. And so we see in the gospel reading this morning that like Peter, we can all be blinded by our prejudices, our, precondition, our preconceptions, I mean, our presuppositions about what's going on. And you've probably all heard a hundred times in Bible studies or sermons that, you know, the first followers of Jesus were expecting a Messiah who would overthrow Rome and all that. But there's a lot more going on than that. This was being experienced by them on like 19 different levels. It's kind of like you probably heard this silly old one-liner, but, you know, just in case you haven't, you know. What did the fish say when he hit the wall? Damn. Um, but for all of you who think the bishop just cussed, the noun, not the adjective, you know. Damn. Uh, that's kind of what they were experiencing. Just kind of going along, I think I get this, and all of a sudden, Jesus says, I'm going to lose. I'm going to die. And I'm inviting you to lose with me. Damn. Really? That's what's going down here? Because, you see, they get this. Around the time of Jesus, just before and just after, so if you just think of that, just think as a historian here for a minute, you know, just think of it half a generation or generation before Jesus, a little bit after Jesus. There had been plenty of failed messiahs. And there was one way to know that they failed. You know, if it was, we were watching an NBA game this afternoon, there'd be a scoreboard that said, you know, LA Lakers 116, you know, Phoenix Suns 110 or something. Well, there was a scoreboard for this too, and it was called dying. If you died, that was proof positive you were a failed messiah. That's a genuine damn. What does this mean? You know, what is going on here? You see, this is how it starts rocking your, your presuppositions about what's going on. It starts rocking your, your preconditions about something that I thought was going to happen is not going to happen the way it turned out. 
And of course, our reading in Genesis this morning shows us that Abraham, too, actually found God in uncertainty. He found and Sarah found God in danger and in suffering. And of course, this is totally counterintuitive. It's precisely when we fear that God will be absent, there we find him. And so this invitation of Jesus to take up our cross, it goes something like this. There was indeed danger brewing because what always happened to these failed messiahs is they would be kind of like a Jewish revolutionary and they would rise up with some new thought, almost like our political scene. Like now all of a sudden everybody's talking about contraception. Who would have thought? But you know, something bubbles up. And so something would bubble up like that. And one of these Jewish revolutionaries would grab hold of it and try to make hay with it. And the Romans would always slap them down. And if they didn't accept being slapped down, or perhaps the Jewish authorities would slap them down, then they would be crucified. So Jesus knows he's going into danger and suffering, and he's walking right into it. So if you want to look at your gospel lesson for a moment this morning, what's happening here is is something like this. That Jesus, it starts out saying, it began to teach them something new. This whole business of I'm going to lose, and I'm asking you to lose too. So he says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life would lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Well, what's happening here for Peter and the other 12 is that they're suddenly realizing that there's more to discipleship than merely listening to Jesus's really cool teachings and watching him heal the sick and drive out demons and cleanse lepers. You see what I mean? That, that was one level of knowing. And they were knowing really appropriately on that level. Like, wow, Jesus teaches with amazing power and authority. And his teachings reveal things that I would have never in a million years thought of. He does these works of power. But now all of a sudden, they're being asked to go from observers to participants. And not just participants, but participation in this strange new way of I'm going to give up my life. And of course, this doesn't fit any of their narratives or, you know, kind of hoped for scenarios. It doesn't work at all. And of course, again, in our reading with Genesis this morning, it didn't work for Abraham, really, when he heard God say, I'm God Almighty, walk before me faithfully and be blameless. If you know at all the story of Abraham, he was a deeply flawed man. And we probably couldn't, you know, just sort of maybe guess that Sarah was too, that these weren't perfect people. And what God was saying to them at at 99 or 100 years old, that they were gonna have a son who would be um, the one who birthed many nations of faithful people to God, none of that made any sense. But though deeply flawed, they trusted and they cling to God's promise. So our reading in Romans 4, if you wanna look at it, says basically this. When everything was hopeless... Abraham believed anyway, deciding not to live on the basis of what he saw he couldn't do. Like he looked at his body and said, no testosterone patches in his era. And he looked at Sarah and said, I don't know where we can hook you up with some hormones for you either. I think we're in trouble here. But he didn't look at what he or they couldn't do He didn't focus on his own impotence and say it's hopeless. 
Rather, he plunged into the promise. He just took the dive. And in that sense, he's our father in the faith, right? Are you connecting with? Jesus says, I'm gonna lose. I'm inviting you to come into it. That requires taking a plunge. And it can't be just looking at ourselves in Lent and what we see in us that's spiritually impotent or hopeless. There has to be some kind of faith in which we can take the plunge. So in this passage, the word believe is used five times of Abraham, trust once, and have faith 11 times. But these verbs, these things that expressed what was happening in Abraham's heart are all responses that get both their initiation and their content from the purpose and action of God, right? You need to connect with this. God appears to him and says, I am God Almighty. Come walk with me into this new thing. See, that's the initiation and that's the content from which comes these things, believe, trust, have faith. So what Abraham had going for him that we need to have going for us as we go through our sort of Lenten examination is a trusting readiness to let God work. Abraham made huge mistakes, if you can just remember his story briefly, but he really trusted God. And maybe you can feel that too. Maybe you find yourself to be this really mixed person and perhaps you make really big mistakes, but yet you do, you find this, this kind of also fundamental residue of, of trust in you for God. So Abraham simply trusted. He had the faith. He had faith in God's ability to do the impossible. Now, just a bit of, uh, of guidance for those of us who are practicing the practices of Lent. And I think this is important that what we see in Abraham and what we see in what Jesus was calling in Peter and the 12 is that trust and faith, not law, not morals, not obedience, it's trust and faith are at the heart of a relationship with God. And that God's promise and Abraham's faith came before the law, before any kind of sacrificial ritual. Are you feeling me here? Before there was a law, God's promise, his calling to Abraham, and Abraham's faith was there. And what this teaches us is that faith proceeds and shapes our obedience. It cannot be the other way around. Otherwise, we end up being like the Pharisees who Jesus said, you're whitewashed tombs, meaning your externals are all good, but the inside is left dead. Or you wash the outside of the cup but leave the inside untouched. So faith always proceeds and gives shape to our obedience, not the other way around. If you think of it for just a moment, this is obvious. Infants, I see one in the back there, always clingingly trust before they ever can hear or understand a command. Are you catching that? Infants sit in those little, whatever they're called. They sit in those little things and they clingingly trust way before they can ever understand don't run in the street. And that's what, that's what Jesus wants us to understand, that that's the nature of this relationship with God. It's not built on obedience. Obedience is surely there and required, but it's built on this prior clinging trust. So if morals are like visible flowers, Faith is the unseen roots that make flowers possible. 
Now, I don't know if you're reading the little Lenten reflections that we're putting on the website. I hope you are. You should. Uh, Todd Pickett wrote the one for this week, and, and I think Todd gave us a really good insight, and I just, a, a bit of it here, that the danger of Lent is this, that our Christian life become kind of a moral project by which we seek to perfect ourselves by the weak power of our will. Now, in this brilliant book that I just wrote called Our Favorite Sins, just playing, um, I, I, there's a passage in there somewhere that says that appeals to the will will never and can never work. And here's why. Your will is sort of like Congress, and it's constantly being lobbied by your thoughts and your emotions. They are constantly beating on your will. And unless we bring the totality of who we are, and of course, when it comes to temptation, that means having rightly ordered desires. Unless we bring the totality of who we are sort of into play in this, willpower alone will never work. Ask anybody who's ever been on a diet. It just doesn't work. So the temptation in Lent then, Todd said, is to undertake this detachment apart from God and his life in us. But this now, I think, is the really helpful thought. The purpose of this detachment that we're doing in Lent is to create space for the loving work of God in us. It's not some sort of big moral effort in the sense that I, I hope you can see, but rather it's a creating space. It's a, it's a letting go of something, chocolate, whatever your deal is, just so that in that moment, you have this little pause in your life that says, oh yeah, God. Oh yeah, this clinging thing, this trusting thing I have to just sit in one of those little things, whatever they're called. And that out of that, yeah, he's doing this work in me and I cooperate with it. And the flower is obedience, but the root is this prior loving faith. So Jesus then invites us to death to self. And the reason it's so important to get this straight is that death to self is not self-hatred. I, I think I've told you before, it's my very favorite illustration for what Jesus means by this, and I only have time to tell you quickly. Um, but uh, picture this wonderful cross that our, all of our artists have made. Picture that that's a big palm tree or something. Well, palm tree has a certain kind of life, right? It's alive with reference to the relative moisture in the air. It's alive with reference to the nutrients in the soil and the pot. A palm tree has a kind of life, right? Well, what if there was a kitty cat sitting here on the podium? Little playful black and white kitty cat. I take a red ball, I toss it down the aisle. What's the little red, what's the little uh, black and white kitty cat do with the ball? Jumps down and chases it, Why? right? What does the plant do with reference to the ball? Nothing, why? Because though it's alive, it's dead to the realm of play. It doesn't have that kind of life. Now, switching scenes, let's put a little love seat here or something, and I'm sitting on it with my daughter, Carol, when she's, I don't know, when do you do flashcards? First grade. So daddy says, four times four. And Carol says, 16. Well, what does the cat do? Does the cat stop playing with the ball and go, I'll be darned. You know, four times four is 16. No, why? Because though the cat is alive to the realm of play, it's dead to the realm of mathematics. It doesn't have that kind of life. You know, look me in the eye. When Jesus says to you, take up 
your cross and crucify yourself. He does not mean become a nothing, a nobody, a doormat, engage in self-hatred. He means if you're living a plant-like kind of existence, if you're living a cat-like kind of existence, give it up, crucify it, and become humanity as God intended. Become fully human and fully alive. Laying down your life means to pick up a superior life in the kingdom of God. That's the invitation. And that's what we pursue in Lent. Our little examinations are just to make space, not for this sort of self-morbid kind of thing, but believing what the psalmist said, that God has never let you down. He's never looked the other way when you're being kicked around. He's never wandered off to do his own thing. He's always been right there listening. Yeah, tell that to somebody in Alabama this morning. You know this guy in Alabama, his house was destroyed last spring in a tornado. He rebuilt it and it was destroyed again a couple of days ago. And you tell that guy, God's never wandered away. God's always been listening. But see, these little moments of Lent, when we sit, we realize that it's actually true. Even in the most difficult times in life, it's actually true. So this Lent, don't be content, if you're tempted to this, to wallow in your sins, just sort of rehearsing them over and over again. They're not beyond forgiveness. And, and instead, what if this Lent, we heard this invitation to dare to live, to not look at your sinful impotence, but trust that God's gonna birth something, to when you hit this wall of confusion to go, okay, I'm in, I'm gonna have confident trust that I am forgiven and that I'm being given a fresh start and a new beginning. And that gives me this sort of daring trust to get in the game.